We're looking at the second commandment today. Uh, the Ten Commandments are contained a couple places in the Old Testament. We're looking at the section of Deuteronomy chapter 5 where they are contained. Just one verse for us today. God says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This is God's word. So last week we kicked off a series on the Ten Commandments. We're calling it Echo, and if you remember from a couple years ago, Echo was a series we did on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, The idea of the Echo series, which by the way I hope will continue coming back as long as I'm your pastor at least, is a going back to the most important, the chief, the, the central pieces of Christian doctrine. Those six chief parts of Christian doctrine are represented by the little clip art pictures up there on the screen. You can see the one to the far left for you is highlighted. It's two tablets which represent the Ten Commandments. The cross next to it is the Apostles' Creed, the story of Jesus that we know, the gospel message. The hands praying are, of course, the Lord's Prayer. The shell with water is baptism. The bread and the wine are the Lord's Supper. And the keys are the ministry of the keys, which is also called confession and absolution. These six chief parts of what it means to be a Christian, if you get these, you get Christian doctrine. There's other stuff that you can know, can be helpful, but like if you got this, you're good. So we want to repeat these things, echo these things again and again to remind ourselves what is the foundation of what we teach. It can be easy, like for people like me who have to get up and talk about something every week, to want to get into new and interesting ideas, but what God has called us to do is to come back to the foundational truths of the scriptures. So we're looking at the Ten Commandments for the next couple weeks. And last week, we introduced this series with the First Commandment. But one thing we learned about the First Commandment is that it's not actually the first thing that God says when he gives us the Ten Commandments. For those of you who are studying with us last week, you remember that God starts the Ten Commandments by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And in doing so, God sets the tone for the Ten Commandments in a way that I think many people miss. They think of the Ten Commandments and they think, here are the laws that you need to keep in order to be a good Christian. These are the laws maybe that you need to keep in order to be saved, in order to earn points with God. But what God himself actually says is, no, every single one of these commandments is under the umbrella that I am the Lord your God. God starts the Ten Commandments with a statement of unconditional choice, that he is yours and you are his. Not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, not because you are particularly better than anyone else, but because God says, I am That's the end of it. And you might think to yourself, well, I haven't been a very good Christian for the last week or year or lifetime. But God says, that doesn't matter. I am. And you might think, I haven't even been a Christian for much of my life. God says, I don't care. I am. This isn't about you. It's about me. Now, because I am who I am and because I have made you who you are, then you can follow the Ten Commandments. And you know this, of course, if you've ever had children in the house, Your kids are not part of your family because they follow the rules. They're part of your family because you have chosen to make them part of your family. Now, you expect them to follow the rules. There's a way that life can flourish in your house, and that's what God gives us in the Ten Commandments. But let us not think for a second that the Ten Commandments are our stepping stones to get a little bit closer to God. They are the ways that we can think about in our relationship with God, how can we be beneficial to the other people in the house? And so God gave us the first commandment last week. You shall have no other gods before me. We didn't take too much time on this because I wanted you to realize as we go through this series that the first commandment is really unpacked in all the other commandments. As we go through each of them, we'll see how each one of them relates back to the first commandment. And I'll show you that today with the second commandment as well. 
But one of the things we wanted to get in our mind was this concept of idolatry, what it means to worship something other than God. And it's very easy for us to think, well, that means that I might go to the Buddhist temple or the mosque or something like this. That's what it means to worship another god, and that that certainly would be an example of that. But Satan likes to work in far more subtle ways. He likes to get us to worship things that we would never even think of calling religious. And so we worked through a number of questions last week. We asked ourselves, are there things that we praise? Are there things that uh, we sacrifice for? Are there things that we go to the temples, so to speak, of? The places where we need to go in order to be in touch with those things? Are there things that we trust in order to make us feel okay? Are there things that we trust in to give us hope for the future? Are there things that we would speak the gospel of? We would tell the good news to other people. This thing is so good, you should have it in your life. Whatever we answer to these questions, these are the things that we functionally worship, even if we wouldn't call them religious, even though we wouldn't call them God. We wouldn't call them the the temple of physical attractiveness, or the church of influence, or the temple of wealth, or, or anything like that. We would, we would bypass those things and think, oh, they're just normal parts of life. But God says, no, you have to look at those things and identify them. They're things that you fear, love, and trust. And they can't come before God. So with all that said, as our intro to the series, we're going to study the second commandment today. And if you're following along with us in the notes sheet, I have three points for you. We're going to ask these questions. What is God's name? We're going to look then at the theological misuse of God's name, and then finally a practical misuse of God's name. So first of all, what is God's name? I think for many people, if they would uh, have to answer what God's name is or what's the importance of God's name, they would think uh, about something maybe like these banners up here on the wall. Uh, these banners were not here put, put, by, put here by us. They were put here by Mississauga Victory Church, who we, we rent this building from. Um, but what many people think of when they think of the name of God are the plethora of titles that God gives himself in the scriptures. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with all these different names and having them up on the wall. And by the way, this isn't the only place they show up in this building. You could go look in the office that I use. There's many other names of God up on the walls of this building. There's nothing inherently wrong with those things. In fact, there might be a benefit in those things because you can see many different facets of who God is. You can see the richness, the thickness of who he is, the glory that he is for you. We know this to be true because we do it with our friends and close family members. You might see this at a wedding, like, at a, like a bridesmaid's speech, right? Where, where a woman will say, she's my best friend, my confidant, my partner in crime, and she's my sister. Right? They'll give a whole number of, of descriptors of who that person is because they want everyone listening to understand that this person is, is not unidimensional. Like this person has a depth to them, a, a relationship that means something. God does the same thing. He gives us these many names that you can see behind me. And he gives us in those names many different facets of who he is. Unfortunately, though, um, Satan likes to twist all the good things that God gives us. And so what happens, I think, sometimes is people start to think that the many names of Jesus are somehow magic. Like if we just know all the different names or we start to use all these names in a certain way, then we're going to get extra bonus points from God or our prayers are going to be answered more quickly or more likely the way we want. If we would just say those names... If we would repeat them again and again, then somehow we're going to stir up some spiritual juju to get things going our direction. It's just simply not what the name of God is for. The name of God is not so much about the sounds, but it's about the meaning behind those sounds. 
Uh, just to, to prove this to you, uh, Jesus is not what he would have been called when he walked the, wor- the earth. Right? Jesus is a Latinized, well, it's an Englishized, Latinized, Greekified, Aramaicified Hebrew name. In other words, no one would have turned their head if you would have called out Jesus in a crowd in the first century AD. But 2,000 years of Christian history have been pretty okay with calling him Jesus. And not that we take always our cues from church history, but if, if 2,000 years of Christians have been pretty okay with it, I think maybe what we understand is that the, the meaning behind that name is what's more important than the sounds that we use. Jesus' name, all the way back to Hebrew, means the Lord saves, which is exactly what he did. He gave up his life to forgive your sins so that you could live with God forever. You could be saved from eternal damnation. So we want to think about more than the sounds of his name, J-E-S-U-S or G-O-D or Y-H-W-H or whatever you want to call God, is what is the meaning behind that name? And so a way to think about this maybe to, to implant it in your mind is God's reputation. Who does he stand to be? To exercise this, I, I could say any number of names of famous people, and you would immediately have a whole number of thoughts that would come to your mind, right? If I say Donald Trump, or I say Justin Trudeau, or I say Abraham Lincoln, or I say Justin Bieber, like, you immediately have a sense of who that person is just by hearing the sounds of their names. They have a reputation, and God does too. And by the way, we can show this from the scripture. When God is talking to Moses, he comes down and says to Moses, this is my name, Right? It says that he came down in a cloud, stood there with Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And then he said this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, uh, sh- maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He pr- punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. I've been filling out a lot of paperwork for Clayton's birth certificates and passports lately, and that would not fit on a birth certificate. But that's because it's more than just the sounds that God wants to be known by. His name is a reputation. It's who he is. So when we think about God's name, we don't think just about the sounds, but the meaning behind those sounds. Now, God says there are, there are misuses of this name that we can fall into. And I put them in two categories for you, a theological misuse and a practical misuse. And that's what we're going to work through the, the rest of our time together. Uh, To understand that there are two ways to misuse this, we actually have to look at the text of the commandment itself. The Bible says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And that's a fine translation of English into Hebrew, but it does not capture the nuance of what the Hebrew text has for us there. Uh, Literally, the, the text reads like this in Hebrew, you shall not take up the name of the Lord your God for no reason or for vanity or nothingness. You shall not take up the name of the Lord your God for no reason. And the reason I think that's interesting and wonderfully nuanced is it gives us two facets of what God does not want us to do with his name. Now, to understand that, first of all, you need to understand a little bit of Hebrew idiom. Uh, In Hebrew, they have an idiom for how to speak about something. They call it taking it up on your lips. You can see this in Psalm 16. Uh, It says, those who run after gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. There's a Hebrew way of speaking of saying, I'm going to repeat about this God. I'm going to praise this God. I'm going to speak about this God. And so the first thing that God is telling us not to do is first misuse of his name is that we would take up his name on our lips for nothingness. We would take it up in vain. 
In other words, that we would say about God things that aren't true or not say things about God that are true. Or if you're taking notes with us, you can fill in the blank like this. Not telling the truth about God. Not telling the truth about God. The Bible gives us some examples of what this looks like. He says in Psalm 139 that your adversaries misuse their name because they speak of you with evil intent. They speak about God, but they speak about him not from who he is, but with evil intent. Jeremiah gives us an example of this too. Jeremiah 23, God says, I am against the prophets who wag their own tongues and yet declare the Lord declares. In other words, he says, you can't take my name and put it on your message. Whatever you think is true, you can't say God says that. I'm against you if that's how you behave. This is intuitive for us because we understand the power of a signature. Right in our country, you can sign something, and when you sign something, that gives it the authority behind your name. That You agree with whatever that document has to say, and we have penalties in this country if you forge a document, right? If you forge someone's signature or you change a document that someone has already signed, you can get years in prison or thousands of dollars in fines. We're not okay with misusing each other's names. And God asks the same thing. He says, do not take up my name on your lips for nothing. And so fundamentally, this commandment is the commandment against false doctrine. Right? It's, against, it's against telling lies about God, speaking something that is not true about God. Now, why does this matter? Why would God care? Well, because the name of God and accurately understanding the name of God is a salvation issue. Acts 4 tells us this, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You have to get God right if you want to be saved. And it makes sense, right? Jesus says, I'm the way. If you get the way wrong, you're not going to end up at the right destination. If you invite someone over to your house, they live far, far away, and you give them map coordinates, right? You're going to give them a number of different elements. You're going to give them maybe a street number, the street name, maybe a unit number. You're going to give them a city, a province, a postal code, and the country. And if the person who's coming to visit you gets any one of those elements wrong, they are not going to show up at your house. They're going to show up somewhere else. And so every bit of what God says and does not say about himself matters which is why he says, you shall not take up my name on your lips for no reason. Now, if you've been around, um, excuse me, I should leave it on that one. Uh, If you've been around our our church for any length of time, you might know that uh, our international church body has a little bit of a reputation about caring about this. Um, We care a lot about false doctrine and making sure that we correct when we see somebody saying something that is not true about God. And for some people, I think that's off-putting. Right? Like, no one really likes to be corrected. Um, and, and to some extent, I want to be humble. Like, we should watch out for ourselves that we're not trying to justify ourselves by our own right doctrine. That we think, oh, I'm so good because my doctrine is so right, instead of saying, I'm so good because Jesus died for me, right? But at the same time, it is a salvation issue. And so we have to talk about the truth, but what the Bible says and what others peddle as God's teaching, declaring that the Lord declares when it's their own ideas. Now, I don't want to throw stones in a purposeful way to like make you hate other groups of people, but we do have to make sure that we're clear that as we look out at the, the vast swath of Christianity in this country, much of it believes very obviously false doctrine. 
And just for an example, the three most populated denominations in Canada, which are the Roman Catholic Church, the United Church of Canada, and the Anglican Church, which is in full fellowship with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada, which, by the way, is not us, but they're functionally one church body. Those three church bodies all have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Bible is. That seems like a big deal to me. I mean, if we're going to know who God is, we might as well learn from him. And the Bible is where we find that. For example, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada, they believe that parts of the Bible are God's word, but not all of it. The Anglican Church in Canada would say the Bible is a source of doctrine, but really what's more important are our liturgies. That's where we hold on to our beliefs. The uh, United Church in Canada would say the Bible is God's word, but it's one of many sources where God tells us about himself. And the Roman Catholic Church would say the Bible is God's word, but you need the church to interpret it for you. You need a priest or a bishop or a pope to make sure you know what it says. In other words, the Bible cannot stand on its own in those denominations. And to be clear, maybe your Catholic friends or your United Church sister doesn't actually believe that. That's fine. God be praised. But that's their official teachings. We've got to be honest about that. Because the name of God is how people are saved. True doctrine about who God is is how people are saved. Let's push this back now to the first commandment. Because really that's where this is all drawing us back to. See, a sin against the second commandment is ultimately a sin against the first commandment, and here's how. When you believe something that is not true about God, then you are setting up for yourself a new God. He might smell a lot like the true God and look a lot like the true God and sound a lot like the true God, but he is not the true God. And if you have ever interacted with twins, you know this. They're very similar, but they're different. And usually, more often than not, that God is set up in our own image. We take the parts of God that we don't really like, the rough edges, the sharp corners, and we round those off a little bit and say, this is more kind of like what I think God should be like. But God says, you can't do that. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Because if you do, you throw away who I am, and you have another God. Now, to make this really personal, let me press it on cross of life for a second so we're not just thinking about everybody out there. Are there things that you know God says that you avoid? Are there things that you know that God says that you say to yourself, I'm the exception to that? Like, I know what God says about my sexuality, how I use my body, how I use my money, how I use my time, how I orchestrate my family life, what I put in front of my eyes. But I'm the exception because I'm unique. This situation is different. Jesus didn't live when I live. He didn't live where I live. He didn't have the economy that I have. He didn't have the family that I have. So he, it's just a little bit different for me. This is misuse of the name of the Lord your God. It's saying, actually, I'm God. I like God's ideas. I'm just going to take them and repackage them for me. But maybe even more sinisterly, are there any parts of your life where you haven't thought about what God might have to say about that? Like, I think it's easy for us to, to point out the very obvious things where God has spoken very clearly. But do we have a theology of the subtle things of life? The things where we think, ah, God doesn't probably say anything about that, does he? Turn up, God says a lot of things. He might not say them explicitly, but implicitly. Or he might say them by putting together a number of different things he says in different places. We got to pursue that. For example, do you have a theology of smartphone usage? Do you have a theology of taking, uh, excuse me, a theology of taking vacations? 
Do you have a theology of retirement? Do you have a theology of being a grandparent? God says things about this, and we ought to care what he has to say, because saying things that God doesn't say and not saying things that God does say are the same in God's eyes. They're a theological misuse of his name. Which brings us to the second point, a practical misuse of God's name. Uh, to understand this, we have to go back again to that first place we went with the misuse of God's name being taking the name up. Uh, there's a, a second way that you can understand the taking up of the name of God, and that's probably a more English way of understanding it, which is literally, I picked something up off the ground and I carried it with me. God says we ought not to take up the name of God with ourselves, take it upon ourselves for no reason, for no purpose in vanity. The practical misuse of God's name is this. It's giving, a God, giving God a bad reputation. Like I said to the children, you have been given God's name in your baptism. You're literally called Christians, which is Christ. It's your name. And yet every action that you do reflects on the God who calls you his own. So when we take up the Lord's name on ourselves, we ought to do it not for no purpose, but for the purpose which God has given us. This again comes right from the scripture. This is Romans chapter two. Uh, God says, his name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In the context, this is misbehavior. This is follow, uh, be, excuse me, breaking God's law. God's name is blasphemed because of the misbehavior of his children. And so not only do we have a theological misuse where we speak false things about God, but as we live, we live contrary to God's will for us. We live not representing the God who put his name on us. Now, this is really hard um, for us because as North American Christians, I think we really want to live like the rest of the world and then sort of like spread the Christian icing on the top so that when people look at it, they see like I have Christian on my Facebook profile or I marked Christian in the last census form I filled out, but underneath, I'm basically the same. That's, I think, what we're all tempted to want to do. We want to be just as greedy, just as stingy, just as obsessed with looking good or feeling good we want to speak the same ways about politics or our children or our husbands or our wives. We want to drink and smoke and live and do all the things, just kind of like the rest of the world. But then go to church on Sunday and say, but me and God are good. Now remember, your behavior is not what qualifies you as a Christian. God put his name on you. But if that's how we're going to live, we throw away God's name. We misuse it. This matters. It matters for the people out there. I was listening to another pastor preach on the idea of the second commandment, and he told this really great story. About 200 years ago, just across the lake in upstate New York, uh, the Boston Missionary Society was trying to evangelize the Iroquois Indians that lived there. And so the Boston Missionary Society came in, and they went to one of the chiefs, a man named Red Jacket, and they said, hey, can we preach the gospel to your tribes? And Red Jacket gave this really great answer. He said, um, there are white folks who are also living in this area, and they are oppressing us and treating us poorly and cheating us. Go preach your gospel to them. And if it changes them, then we'll let you preach to us. You understand the idea? If your gospel is so great, it will change the hearts of people. It will change the behavior of people. They will see themselves as new creations, to use biblical language. Let me ask you, if Red Jacket looked at your life, would he let you pre the, preach the gospel to his tribes? I think for many of us, that's a tough question to answer because we do. We want to live a normal North American life and fit in with the rest of society. 
We don't want to look that different, that weird. Maybe just a little bit. But God calls us to be different. He calls us to be ones part of a family that is set apart from the world around us. And so we pursue it, right? We pursue this different way of living. Because it matters not just for us, but it matters for everyone else. Maybe to make this a little bit more um, personal, maybe a little bit less anachronistic, uh, if your phone could talk, would it testify to the grace of God working in your life? If your budget could talk, would it extol the excellency that the Holy Spirit is working in your life? If your pets could talk, would they say the person that she or he is behind closed doors is even better than the person that shows up on Sunday morning? It's a challenge for every one of us, right? Because even though we bear the name of God, we misuse it constantly by our lifestyle. We don't represent the God who, um, who gave us his name uh, the way that he would. And again, this is a breaking of the first commandment, ultimately. The second commandment is once again broken here. Why? Because when we live unlike the way God has called us to live, what we communicate to the world around us is God is not so much my God, he's kind of my assistant. Right? Ultimately, I call the shots around here. He doesn't. We show them that the, the God that we worship is not a God worth submitting to, not a God worth following no matter what he says. He's a God worth following insofar as he works for me. But I'm mostly living my life like everyone else. This can't be among us, brothers and sisters. This matters for the people out there. You know, I, I look up these statistics about um, why people don't and do come to church and, and why they stay or leave churches. And one of the things that just keeps coming up uh, time and time again is that people leave churches for usually one of two reasons, depending on what study they come in different orders, but it's usually one of two reasons. One is that the people there are hypocritical, which you probably heard before, right? And, and as Christians, we might say to ourselves, well, yeah, no duh, that's why we have a church. That's like why, why we have the gospel, because we're hypocritical and we need a savior from being hypocrites. But what I want us to consider is, like, do we show that? Do we show that we're broken people here to worship a savior who's not like an like a interior decorator, like making a good thing a little bit more pretty, but he's like a, like a general contractor, like taking out walls and renovating the place? The, the second reason... I think is even more interesting, though. And they'll say, I don't think the church really offers me that much. Now, doesn't that strike at your heart? It doesn't offer me that much. I mean, at least on paper, we're all here because we believe that there is an eternity outside of this existence that is going to go on, and we're going to be in one place or the other in that eternity. And we know that by our nature, we do not deserve to go to the good place. We deserve to go to the bad place. And there is a man who has come who is God in the flesh who has died for our sins so that we don't have to suffer forever. That matters a whole lot. But do we communicate that with our lives? Is this a place I come to because it's nice, the people are nice, the preaching is nice, the coffee is decent? Or is this a place we come to because we say, I have to be here because my eternity depends on it? Or maybe to say it differently, if people would look at your life, would they, would they be able to tell that there are some things in your life that you would rather do, but you can't because you're a Christian? Not, I can't do them because I don't have the money. Not, I can't do them because my wife wouldn't like it. Not, I can't do it because I don't have time. But I can't do it because I'm a Christian. 
This is the kind of name that God wants us to hold on to. And so at this point, probably thinking, wow, I do not deserve to be in the family, which is true. And it's also why the first commandment wasn't the first thing that God said, right? I am Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. Not if you're good, not if you represent me well, not when you show people what my name truly means. He said, no, you're mine. You're always going to be mine. I give you access to me, not dependent on you, but dependent on me. Maybe to press this on you a little bit, two examples that came to mind, even as I was just walking to church this morning. Um, When I was growing up, this isn't so much true anymore, and I'm not making a commentary, a social commentary on this, but it's just interesting to me. When I was growing up, I was always taught to address adults by their last name, and then Mr. or Mrs. or Miss. And I vividly remember this one time where I had to talk to a man in my church, um, and I must have been seven, eight years old, something like that. I needed to talk to him about something, and my, my dad said, now you have to call him Mr. Pranchke was his last name. And I was terrified of him. But I got up all the, the guts that I had, and I went and talked to him and called him Mr. Pranchke. His real name is Frank, and my dad called him Frank because my dad was his peer. I was not his peer. I had to call him by a, a title that separated me from him. Right? Even though we are equal of value, of course, he is on a different level than me because he was an adult and I was a child. But God gives you his name. He doesn't just give you God. He gives you his personal name. He gives you Jesus. To tell you that you and him, you're not separated anymore. You're together. Of course, he's God and you're not, but he welcomes you in. Or to say it another different way, um, in our house, Our kids call us mom and dad. But they do know what our personal first names are. And it's always hilarious to me when my kids use my personal first name because I think to myself, like, you don't even know who that person is. (laughs) You don't know his stories from seminary or college or high school or childhood. You only know dad, and dad's only existed for a little bit over four years. (laughs) But God gives you his personal name. He lets you know who he is. He lets you know his story. That though he was in very nature God, he did not consider his equality with God something to be held onto, but something to be given up so that he could take on the form of a servant for you, being made in human likeness and making himself even subject to death for you. And not just any death, but death on a cross. So that God would exalt him to the highest place and give him a name that was above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know his story, and you know it's for you, and you know you have access to that. And so call upon his name. If you're walking through a crowded place and you drop your wallet, somebody picks it up, they start yelling, hey, hey, you, hey, guy. You might not turn your head, especially if you're like me and you're generally just trying to avoid people. But what if they take your driver's license out They say, hey, Caleb, immediately your head turns because you know it's you. God has given you his name. You call on his name. He doesn't ignore you. His head immediately turns around towards you to hear whatever it is you have to say, to give you the comfort that you need and the support that you need and the direction that you need and the wisdom that you need and whatever the situation might be. And not because you've been particularly a good representative of him, but because he is the Lord your God. He has done the work necessary to be that, and he will be that for you. So now live in his family. 
Represent him well. Use his name to speak the truth about him and use his name to be a motivator to live for the benefit of your neighbor. Let's pray. God, thank you for this name that you have put on all of us in our baptisms. We ask that we, you would give us your Holy Spirit to represent you well and that you would give us the reminder of your grace when we don't represent you well. We pray that your name would be extolled, not just in this place, but in our communities, through our words and through our actions, so that more people will call upon your name and be saved. We ask those things in your, in your name. Amen.